and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the people behind the positions in our public conversations. We live in divided times, and I have a hunch that listening to people from a range of perspectives reflect on their deepest values and share the stories that have shaped them might help us navigate these deep differences. Every episode, I interview someone with some kind of public voice, archbishops, journalists, politicians, novelists, and I ask them what they hold sacred and what they have learned about engaging with people with whom they might disagree. If you're finding the sacred at all life-giving or thought-provoking, please would you take a moment, maybe even right now if you have your phone in your hand, to send an episode to a friend, write a review or give us a rating. It really helps people find the podcast and hopefully gain something from listening to it. Meanwhile, this week's episode is a conversation I had with the Reverend Rachel Mann. Rachel is a poet and a priest in the Church of England. She lectured in philosophy before being ordained and has a PhD in 19th century women's poetry and the Bible. Her most recent books include full-length poetry collection A Kingdom of Love, Dazzling Darkness and Fierce Imaginings. We spoke about her conversion in her 20s, how that connected with her identity as a trans woman, her calling to the priesthood, and why she thinks poetry can really help us understand what's sacred. I hope you enjoy listening. Rachel, I'm going to jump in the deep end um, and ask you about what you hold sacred. And you can really take that in whatever direction you like. Some people react against the word. Some people feel very comfortable about it. Some people are sort of, you know, walking around it in circles, trying to work out how it sits with them. But whatever came up for you, having had a bit of time to think about it, I'd love to hear it. Well, it's probably going to be unsurprising, given that I'm uh, an ordained person in the Church of England, that I'm relatively comfortable with the concept of the sacred. Inevitably, I want to hold that intention with what things might be excluded from it, concepts of the profane and, and the taboo. I guess for me, and this might seem really surprising, I want to hold to the sacredness and the goodness of bodies. And... Where I want to explore that is partly, of course, through a religious notion, the idea of the body of Christ, to which I think we are all called to be part, but actually the dignity of particular bodies. Um, I mean, maybe a less highfalutin way of putting it, Elizabeth, is this, that one of the deep things within me, one of the things that, gosh, I just don't think I could let go of under the most extreme pressure is that Community claims us and forms us, but must never demean or crush us. So in other words, we are always caught up in a, a community, which for me is the body, and that could be the body politic, it could be um, our families, um, however those are uh, invested with meaning. But within that, I don't want to lose sight of the dignity, the sacredness, the immense value of the particular body of each one of us. Uh, and not least because I think that as someone who has sometimes had a fraught relationship with the church, um, I'm conscious that sometimes things like churches or communities or societies can be dominated by ideologies which want to crush the individual or the person. And so it's in that dynamic tension that we find the sacred, actually. It's in that 
that indissoluble reality in which we're negotiating both the community body and the personal body, that I think we really encounter the divine, the sacred, the graced, the glorious, but of course also the bleak and the sinful and the destructive. Do you feel that we live in a society that is has tendencies towards sort of the, the disembodied? And I'm both thinking about a kind of caricature of the kind of enlightenment rationality, which shape, you know, has done such a lot of good, but also shaped sure. us in odd ways. And also about the, the kind of digital world in what, which we live and conversations around AI is part of your call to kind of a consideration of the sacred, the sacred in bodies and in embodied form, a reaction against some of those trends. Well, yeah, I, I guess partly. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm someone who was formed in the what we might broadly call the Western secular, or certainly uh, in light, post-enlightenment philosophical tradition, and it's very clear that that much of philosophy for the last 40, 50 years has been a reaction to the disembodied, to the idea of I think, therefore I am, to the idea of of the soul or the self, which is somehow floating inside. And of course, one of the ways in which I think that I, I want to hold on to the notion of the soul, at least, is, you know, that really extraordinary thing that I think it was Ludwig Wittgenstein says in the Philosophical Investigations, where he says, my attitude towards another person, to him, to the person in front of me, is towards a soul. And then he says, but the best picture of the human soul is the human body. And... In a time when, oh goodness me, we're all spending so much time through in digital media, whether that's social media or using applications like Zoom, of course, you know, other applications are available, of course. Um, it's so easy to, to imagine ourselves as kind of digitised and, and so much of our science fictions have these visions of us somehow downloading ourselves into computers. But... You know, at the very heart, actually, of Christianity, and I think it shocks people, it's one of its most shocking things, is the dignity and the centrality and the power and importance of the body. And that's signalled by the this idea of the representative body that's found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's body matters in terms of redemption somehow. It's, it's a mystery quite how that happens, but it's a reminder that, we, we, we just can't take flights of fancy. Well we, well, we can. We can take flights of fancy into the idea of the mind or the soul and that, you know, the proper dignity of human beings is, is, is that which is not reducible to the body. But there is, in Christianity itself, these resources to say we need to come back to the body despite the fact, and gosh, do I acknowledge this as a, as a feminist and, as, and as, as a queer theologian, that so often Christianity's had a downer on bodies and has identified it with the, the you know, bodies with fe the feminine, with the labile, with that which cannot last, um, that which um, falls apart and therefore is not to be treated as significant, that which is wicked and dirty and sinful. But there's this other thing in Christianity that says, hey, go back to the body of Christ, go back to Christ's body and we'll discover uh, the place where, where, where our bodies 
discover their dignity and their sacralization. I want to pick up those threads, but first I'm going to ask you to uh, narrate a little bit of, of where you've come from, a little bit of your kind of origin story, as it were. Uh, tell us a bit about your childhood and particularly any big ideas that were formative, philosophical, religious, <laughs> political or other. I, I love this idea of the origin story. Does it, I now feel like I could be a Marvel Cinematic Universe character. That's I mean, really you can make big, one up it? if you feel led. <laughs> this is the joy of having a writer on. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Please do not tempt me, because um, <laughs> but you know, no, yeah, the origin story. I mean, it's. It, I think what I, I need to acknowledge is that my background is is about as humble as they come. Um, I grew up in a rural working class family and community, and I think it's worth saying that that whilst you know I, I've always believed that there is there's there's profound dignity in that, and there's profound dignity in uh, a fully-fledged understanding of the working class that that being rural working class is really weird because I I was raised in a context where the enemy was was not the upper class, it was the middle class. You know, that the solidarity was between um, those of us who were part of what would have been only 30, 40 years before I was born, the, um, the servant class in the big house. And, you know, many of my family worked in that, that, that world. Um, our solidarity was with, with the masters, as it were. Um, and so in so many ways, my formation as an adult, as the first person in my family ever to go to, a, to, to the university and all of that, it felt like I was casting off stuff. I felt like I was casting off stuff only to rediscover the centrality later um, because I think at the heart of what I carry with me from my childhood is the primacy of love and of an indwelling love. Um, you know, as we know, you know, families can be the scenes, the theatres of our greatest triumphs and often the greatest abuses, those people who, who are uh, abused, most often that abuse takes place within the family, as it were. But I, I was raised to really treat the, those family bonds as kind of indissoluble. And I think that's been really crucial for me as, I, you know, as my life, certainly in my 20s and 30s, departed down routes which many people still find really curious and strange. Um, so, I, you know, in one sense, the philosophical ideas that, really matter to me now we might say they're acquisitions you know I've I've acquired a, a middle class subjectivity um, a middle class language but what I go back is that priority of 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 love which says no matter where you travel who you are and who you become we will not let you go and you're still one of us and um- you went on to study philosophy at university. I kind of want to understand a bit about these twin threads of philosophy and poetry. And particularly, you said something in another interview which really intrigued me. You said that before you became a Christian, language was pretty much your God. I'd love to understand a bit more what you meant by that. This idea of language is my God. Um, I think that partly as a result of being so massively influenced by people like Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, 
Um, I have no the, idea who that is. I've heard of Vic. No, no, he's great. No, he's great fun. He's actually, he's so cool. He's so trendy, you know. He's so trendy at the moment. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go look thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I, 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 maybe I need to rediscover him um, again. But as a result, being influenced by those people and also by uh, Foucault, Judith Butler and such like, I think that what I came to, the position I came to is that there's no outside of the language. You know, there's no outside of the text, which is, you know, that sort of rather trendy French. Well, it was trendy back in the 90s. It's not so trendy now. Um, What we are left with is a negotiation of, of... of language, the, the limits of what what we can say is the limits of what we can think, and that slight concern about that, you know, when we start debasing our language, when we lose its nuance and its its power of metaphor and gesture, that we are in danger of losing some of our personhood and um, of of what I think is our, 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 our deep dignity as God's children. Um, when when I had a, a very powerful conversion experience in my mid twenties, which <laughs> completely threw me, it threw my friends, I think it threw my family. It took many many years to work out, and arguably I'm still working it out. That's why I'm ordained. Um, that I think at that point, what I encountered was the power of. God's word, the word, to break through all of the words. And that word is is yes, it's it's linguistic, but it's 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 got verb in it, it's got metaphor, it's got simile, it's got all of the possibilities of language. And then discovering this great delight that in Christianity the word is made flesh. And that means that the word has to live in the midst of the, the contingent with the, the, the reality that, you know, just as much as bodies flourish, they fall apart and they can love, but they can also be brutalised. And I think out of that has emerged my mature writings as, as a poet. It's the wrestling with the language as it is located in my bodies and in other bodies and in the body of the church and in the body of our societies and our communities. That's so interesting. I was having a conversation about free speech with someone recently and always feel very torn around this subject because I, do, I, I believe there is something very important to defend in our ability to articulate things in public but I also as a not but and at the same time as a Christian think words matter and that I think you know that uh yeah the pat that there is power in words and thinking that only actions or only very 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 extreme speech can harm just struggle to reconcile um with my theology, but uh, I won't go down that rabbit hole right now. I want to ask about that conversion experience because from what I've read and understood, you, you went off to university, studied philosophy, you were teaching philosophy. I think you were listening to a lot of heavy metal and death metal, which you still write and, and speak about. I still, you know, yeah. I mean, I listen, I must admit, I, you know, I listen to, a, to, to 
uh, a lot more um, Bark and Marla these days. <laughs> but um, that's just getting middle-aged, yeah. I think. But, you know, I had um, I was listening to Ramstein last night, who are just this extraordinary German metal band. I know and, them. I yeah, have a very strange, a- very strange occasional thing where I have a mood where I want to listen to Metallica and occasionally Ramstein. So <laughs> Amen. Um, that, d- explain that conversion experience to me because uh, I haven't I haven't read about it in detail and I'd love to hear what what was that pivot point what led to it well I mean I guess in one sense I can only I, I need to preface this with um something which is both very important uh, in terms of who I am but is also rather boring and ordinary as well um it, it's worth saying that um I, I'm a trans woman and um I had a sense of profound gender dysphoria from a very early age, which I felt I couldn't articulate. Ironically, in this profoundly loving family environment, you know, that's an example of how family community can disarticulate us, can silence us. Um, But anyway, being someone who had a a real sort of strong sense that there was a God and was formed in a a rather sort of generous, natural Anglicanism, prayed every night to God and prayed for the same things night after night, that that my my dad wouldn't die, he had terrible asthma, that there would be no nuclear war. This was at the height of the second um, Cold War in the early 80s. And that when I woke up, that I would be a girl. And, well, as is the nature of such things, those prayers, well, they were not answered quite as I'd imagined. And very specifically in terms of my gender identity, it was not answered. And I thought, I, if there is a God, then he's just evil. He's, he's a bastard who makes sick creatures like me or there is no God. And so I spent years running away. But, but, but as such is the nature of God, God will not let us go and waits with tenderness. And um, all the way through into my mid-twenties, I had this strong sense that, that, that there was God over my shoulder. You know, I don't know if you know that line from Kazantzakis's uh, The Last Temptation from which we, we got the film The Last Temptation of Christ, in which Christ says, um, God loves me. I know God loves me. I wish he'd stop. I do and, know it. And, and that sense of please let me go, but also having a sense that there was stuff that needed to be worked out. And I you know, started transitioning when I was 23. And it's really interesting. It was only at the point where uh, I, who I, I sensed I, I was called to be, and I, I use vocation very much in terms of my trans identity, uh, at that point where I'd emerged, that I was in a place where... I was ready to let it all go again. You know, Jesus says, doesn't he, something like, um, those who seek to save their lives will lose it. Those who lose their lives for my sake will gain it. And, And what we often miss is that you have to have a life to let go of in the first place. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-twenties that there was a person there. Before that, I felt like a series of masks, a series of performances and gestures. And at that point where I could say, I'm Rachel Mann, this is who I am, and, and, and be accepted and loved and affirmed for that in, in my uh, uh, university community and beyond and in my family. 
at that point, I was ready. And um, this, <laughs> this makes me laugh. This is I, I feel like I'm such a cliche it's, or very odd. Um, it was on the day of Pentecost. It was on Whitson. I didn't know it was Whitson at the time that I felt I could no longer resist that somehow I just simply had to, to, to get down on my knees quite literally. And I prayed, God, if you are there, then I am yours. And I don't mind saying this. I mean, it's it's one of the things that kind of makes me shudder at the purely intellectual level. But I went all in, Elizabeth. I went it all in. I wasn't holding anything back at that point. And I had that sense that, well, if God um, actually has issues with me being trans, then, well, I'm offering that because I just have to go to that place Uh, This call to pray was irresistible. And to my shock, my utter shock, I was loved and given myself back in ways which continue to sometimes distress and disturb me to this day. You know, life is so much easier when you don't believe, you know, um, uh, in my experience. You know, people say it's a great gift of faith. Well, often it feels like a terrible irritation and frustration. And my life started to go all out of shape. You know, I had this idea, oh, you know, I'll be some sort of academic, I'll write philosophical books, you know, I'll be a clever clogs and all of that. And... um, (laughs) And I absolutely found my life flipped upside down. But we, we, we can't let go of things unless there is something to let go of. And, you know, to this day, I am so grateful for that gift. And it's one of the other things, you know, when you talk about the sacred earlier on that I wanted to, to say really is, you know, at the heart of my sense of the sacred is the sense of gift and that it is all gift. And there is just a delight and thankfulness for that gift, even sometimes in the the, the bleakest moments. Joy is possible, even in the bleakest moments, even when pleasure and and, and happiness isn't. Sorry, I've probably gone very deep there, haven't I? I love it. Don't apologise. I always love hearing the stories of people's encounters uh, with love. I... Where should I take this? I I want to just stay a little bit on because you you were talking about transitioning and and feeling like you had to bring that before God because you know before we started talking I checked that you were happy to talk about um, trans identity because I'm so aware that any conversation it can easily stray into what feels like a tinderbox of anger and fear and sadness and you know I I'm doing my best to just listen to listen to voices and to, and to seek to understand but you know I am definitely capable of saying things that are stupid or insensitive or misunderstanding and you very graciously have said of course of course but I, I want to get your reflections on why why is it so difficult to discuss gender identity right now it feels like in the last couple of years it's bubbled up into this difficult cauldron um and you know i'm interested in public conversations it's one of the real pain points in public conversations i think what sure what what's... i mean it's horror it it's it, uh, yeah i mean it's horrifying <laughs> i mean i genuinely find it absolutely horrifying and 
Um, I think it's worth saying that most of the conversations I have with people about trans stuff, um, which is which takes place not on social media, not on Twitter, is actually profoundly rich and tender and generous and ironic. And so I, it does raise some questions for me about the way in which some of the public platforms we have to frame conversation, structure a very particular kind of certainty and surety. Um, and, and I wonder, I mean, part of, you know, and I sit here as someone who I'm so often caught between, and I'm not, please do not pity me for this. I mean, I, you know, I'm so privileged, it's absurd. Um, uh, I was really struck by something that my friend, um, Professor Susanna Cornwall, said in she, she wrote the foreword for the second edition of of my book dazzling darkness which is a extended meditation on gender and sexuality and, and illness and one of the things that really struck me is she said the thing about rachel is that um she is the sort of person who can hold things in tension and that there are people out there who would love her to be a more decisive ally because she'd be so devastating. And that very much applies to people who might sit in the more radical feminist position and those people who sit um, very much clearly in terms of the emerging trans community. Um, I, I want to hold things in tension partly because of when I was formed... Uh, Elizabeth, you know, this, this, a lot of this stuff ain't new. You know, back in the 90s, I remember being disinvited from a meeting um, of a group of, of lesbians. My then partner and I um, uh, were disinvited uh, because I was trans. And it, I was seen as somehow, I don't know, stained with masculinity. Um, and that somehow I would destroy this sacred space for women um and that was pain really painful and i mean i i've whether to my shame or or to my uh good i said i would not attend but it 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 was really costly so this stuff is there i think what do you know what and you can hear the sort of angst and pain in my voice here is there's a kind of masking that goes on with our social media discourse that means that there it becomes easier to, to th hurl hand grenades from both positions. And it would sound absurd. Well, maybe, I'm, again, I'm just struggling to, to find the right words here because I'm so conscious of, of this being a minefield. I'm um, glad it's not just me. If you're finding it you difficult know, look, to look, find I've, the right words, that's I've, reassuring. I mean, just let's be clear here. You know, I have read pretty much every 1970s radical feminist text. And I've written about a few of them. And I think that they are, it is possible to make them um, patient of a generous reading. I am fascinated by the way in which some people want to make uh, them weaponized and i i also want to say that the just extraordinary beautiful wondrous trans people i know uh, have been feel so brutalized that they want to hurl the grenades back 
And it, it seems to me that this is there's a fracture in feminism here that is as old as feminism. And it is to do with the way in which, because it, let's be clear, it's mostly trans women who seem to be the target for, you know, um, being seen as somehow, you know, wicked and evil and shitty and, you know, wanting to destroy the, 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 the world and destroy women. Um, the fracture is partly generated by the pernicious realities, as far as I can see, of 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 patriarchal structures and, and heteronormativity and of whiteness as this unconscious reality. And at the top of that is this person who's white, male and middle class who gets to decide what the field is for absolutely everyone. And and women, therefore, are, are, can never win. So, you know, a classic, it's a sort of classic double mind. You know, if, if a woman wants to actually major on... Um, uh, her 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 looks and her body, you know, she's seen as a traitor. But if she doesn't, she gets you know stereotyped as a you know a prude. And 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 what it means is that to be a woman is a term, which it it, it doesn't have its own status in and of itself. And what we find is, and I feel like we can still bridge this gap, Elizabeth. We can, is that rightly. A whole bunch of white, primarily white women feminists of the 1970s said, let's claim back this concept of woman as a positive term, not just simply as a, as a secondary term, as the, the complement of the only positive term. And then what, comes, comes, what, what we have coming along is a whole bunch of other people some of whom might be black women, some of whom might be disabled women, some of whom might be trans women, saying, hey, the way you've defined that term woman doesn't include us. Let us help reshape that term. And then, but, but then the pushback is to, to say, oh, no, 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 you're, you know, we, we, we found what this term means and now you're trying to mess it up again and destroy it. And, and you know, it's, it's just a, this sort of awful fracture in feminism. And it gets played out using devices which anonymise us, which seem to not facilitate conversation, but facilitate statements and positions. And where I want to go, because I'm a both-and person, where two rights meet each other and destroy each other, meanwhile... All those people who've been oppressing us all along seem to be getting away with it, and we're not drawing attention to them. So it's, it becomes this kind of left infighting, and it, it's, it is not a, a dignified spectacle to behold. Um, having said that, let me just be clear here that it, it just... I've spent too much time in the company of, of trans people to... to to denigrate. Uh, I'm very privileged as a trans person. There are very many trans people who are not privileged. And part of the reason that they are get so upset and so angry and say things which, frankly, I, I think many of us would wish never to say is because they're speaking out of a profound level of vulnerability and a desire for dignity and a desire to be just accepted for who they say they are. Um, yeah, sorry, that's a bit of a ramble, no, a passionate ramble. Not at all, thank you. That really helps 
helps me understand. Um, so I want to pick up the story. You um, transitioned. You had this powerful encounter with God. And then, as you said, your life got turned upside down. How soon did this vocation to become a priest arise? It, it actually arose um, within a few months of the conversion experience. Um much to my distress and anxiety. And um, I remember going to see uh, one of the chaplains and, to, and, and said to him, uh, I, I think I might be called to ordained ministry. And I thought he was going to laugh. How could I, a, tra- a trans person, um, a very recent convert, dare articulate that? What was really beautiful in what he said, and I've ever been grateful for it, is to say that rather than it being arrogant that to be open about a sense of calling and vocation is is a humble matter. And, you know, I I think that does need to be carefully framed because, you know, people have to say, you know, I'm called to something. I have a mission. I'm very special. I'm very important. You know, know, barging other people out of the way. Um... To actually, in a sense, place oneself even further in the hands of God and say, I, I'm, I'm fully in your hands, Lord, and now I would like to explore what it might mean to live out my life of service in a particular way requires a, a kind of letting go of all sorts of plans and, and myths and stories we might hold about ourselves. It's certainly did in my case. And you uh, have been a priest now, parish priest, um, and combining that with with poetry, I really want to have time to talk about poetry, but I, I'm, it's what I would prefer to talk about the whole time and I'm trying not to always indulge myself in that. Oh, so, please, oh, go on. Uh, go I've got on. one more priest question, which is what are some of the public narratives about clergy and about priests that you come up against? Maybe some that you think are healthy or that are unhealthy. What are some of these tropes uh, that you notice (laughs) as we try and, you know, navigate our common life together? Well, I I think it's only fair to acknowledge um, that if one is is a a woman and a priest, there is the, of course, the Vicar of Dibley (laughs) trope. Um, And that sort of sense that we're jolly and we link people up and we make people smile and we're happy all the time. Um, But we also have, you know, a sort of secret... We're all in love with Jesus secretly, um, you know, and want Jesus to be our boyfriend. And, and and all of that and um i yeah, i feel like that that's that's lost some of its traction but goodness me you speak to any any woman who's a priest and she will have come across the flipping uh, vicar yeah. of dibley trope um i think another thing is that we are small-minded pious judgmental um easily shocked and in my experience of being a priest now for, what, 15 years or so, um, it really is the case that priests, in my experience, are amongst the most understanding and generous people. And that's because we see all of life and we live all of life and we're with people at their beginnings and at their ends and all of that sort of thing. Um uh, you're not supposed to like heavy metal, that's for sure. 
<laughs> Do you know, like once I go, this is 10 years ago now. And I, I wrote this, this piece about what Christians could learn about heavy metal. Um, and it, it, it went sort of viral, I suppose, the version of viral we had in 2010 and uh, the Telegraph wrote about it and the Guardian and went round the world. And Oh, those and days where there accused... wasn't too much news and you could write exactly. a piece about every metal and it be in the Guardian and the Telegraph. It was extraordinary. And I remember, and I don't know whether I should have this on my gravestone, um, Rachel Mann is an agent of Satan who's infiltrated the church to bring it down from the inside. And, um, you know, I can laugh about it. I really can laugh about it. But there's a sort of thinness that's expected, I think, of of priests. You know, it, it, it could be summarised in the sense that I think many people think that we we live in a crypt underneath our churches, you know. <laughs> sort of, you know, in a, we, we come out of boxes from behind the altar and for the rest of the week that's where we're stored. Um, whereas um, priests are, as a rule... Um, you know, perhaps we are more on the radio for Radio 3 end of things, but there is a, there's a hinterland there and a cultural hinterland, which might be an opportunity, Elizabeth, for us to talk about poetry. Yes, perhaps. please. <laughs> because I, I get the impression that it's always just been a thread of what you've been doing. But the, the, the quote that stood out to me from reading about you is you talked about poetry as a locus for grace. Talk to me about... Hmm. Um, what is it you're trying to do with poems and how does that practice interact with your faith? Goodness me, did I say that? You oh did. Goodness. Um, I mean, poetry, I think it's worth saying that the, the, the poetic, poesis, the, the Greek root, is about making. And that's why, you know, we can talk about God's making, God's poesis in terms of creating the world, for example, sustaining the world. And I think it's in that sense that I want to say that poetry is a locus of grace because it is a place of making which somehow can show forth the divine, the sacred in our midst. There is a concentration in words deployed in certainly good poetry there is an intensity, and that intensity creates moments of encounter. Um, I'm, I've, I've had to, to learn to accept, because people use it of me, that I'm a lyric modernist, um, by which I mean is that I want the poetry to sing, but I'm also a, an experimenter with words and I'm unafraid of allowing uh, the poetry to, to uh, sorry, language to be on the edge of breaking down. And... I think it was, it was Ezra Pound who says, said that, that poetry is the news that stays news. And what I'm looking to achieve in, in my poetry, in my poems, is that lyric moment, that moment where our breath can be taken away, where we are start, stopped short, where, in a sense, we see the thinness of the world, where we encounter something that is of us, but is absolutely not of us, that is transformative. But to do that in such a way that can also draw attention to it, and that's just a very, very risky thing that lyric modernists do, you know, because I, I, I don't want to lose sight of the artificiality, the, the making, 
the craft of poetry. I think there's a great dignity in saying as a poet that I'm a craftsperson. I, I, I'm really suspicious of this idea of the poet as, as somehow this sort of genius artist, this, um, you know, is in touch with the muses. There are poems which do come to any serious poet which just seem to fall at our feet. But so much of it is about craft and it's the craft, it's the poesis, it's the crafting and making that when it's done with real tenderness and sensitivity and care and love can be a place where gift is known because the poem ceases to be simply of one. We've created something that finds its own life beyond us, becomes breathing, uh, becomes a living word. And as soon as I use that phrase, living word, I'm immediately taken to the notion of an encounter with Christ. Now, obviously, you know, I don't write sort of pious poetry. I'm not looking to convert anyone, far from it, in, in terms of my writing. But I want to facilitate an encounter and that best way of doing it is not by making the poetry instrumental. You know, I'm using words to get to this point, but by trusting the words, trusting the word, because the word is sacred itself. Hmm. I'm reminded of a, a previous interview I did with Andy Crouch, who is um, an American. He edited... Uh, one of the biggest selling evangelical magazines for a long time. Um, and mm. for him, language was his sacred value. Um, it's interesting to me. I'm going to sneak in one final question around what you've <laughs> learned about engaging across deep divides, deep disagreements, multiple identities, multiple callings. What helps us when we encounter someone who just is definitely not in the same place as us, who might even, um, you know, question... <laughs> our identity and our existence or our beliefs, our sense of belonging, what helps us have more human and productive uh, encounters across those differences? What have you learned? I think I need to frame this carefully because I think I, I need to say this because uh, I'm conscious that there, there might be people who listen to this who are in really vulnerable places. And power does operate unequally in our culture and our society. And sometimes if someone is toxic for you, you have to get away. You know, that we, you know, that, that at the personal individual level, there might be limits on difference because that difference might mean to, uh, violence, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual. And nobody should have to live with abuse. But what I've learned is within that framing that... When I take seriously Christ's invitation to love my neighbour as myself, that I'm in a place of potential conversion one to another. Now, that becomes trickier when there are people who just simply aren't interested in that discourse, in the, the mutual recognition but where I've learnt most from people who are radically different to me, I mean, people who hold con uh, incredibly conservative theologies, um, incredibly uh, different political positions to my own, is 
is where one can step outside of the performative, you know, that thing where, you know, whether it's a sort of Oxford Union debating context or it's various variants where, you know, look, let me show off who I am and what I believe and allow the masks to drop because we all wear them and where I can say to another and they can say to me, tell me your story, tell me how you got here and tell me why you think how you got here tells you where you're going. And I think it's it's at that in that place where friendship can emerge. And you know we see in the times in which we live somehow um, you know it, it seems offensive to so many people, certainly on Twitter discourse, that one could be friends with someone who has radically different. Um, theological or philosophical or political views to oneself. But that's dishonest about, to come back to it, the sacredness of the body and how we are ultimately all called to be converted one to another and find our way through. And that seems to me so pressing at this time of populism and natalism and uh, nativism and... and yeah. So, yeah, it's allowing the other to breathe and knowing that they are not going to be attacked the first moment that they breathe or say something which is not uh, what I would say or want to breathe. Mm. Rachel Mann, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you so much for having me on, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.